0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website
1: at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben.
0: Graben, welcome to podcast number 150 for June 6, 2012. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Labosky. He is author of the book, It's Enough to Make You Sick, The Failure of American Healthcare and a Prescription for the Cure. So in this episode, he'll be talking about what he thinks is lacking in current healthcare reform efforts that are driven out of Washington, and we'll also talk about how he defines uh, the crisis in healthcare care. You know, why are things going bad, as he puts it. And then after we try to diagnose the problem, he'll talk about uh, some ideas, some treatments, cures, or solutions that we can all work on together in the health system. For this episode, you can go to leanblog.org/150. Uh, to see links to the book and more. And you can go to leanpodcast.org for all past episodes. As always, thanks for listening. Well, Jeff, I appreciate you taking time out of uh, what I'm sure is a very busy schedule to um, talk to us today and uh,
1: talk about your book. Thanks for being here. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I, uh, I look forward to it.
0: So um, you know, before getting into the book, I'm you know, curious to hear about um, your professional background and um, if you can introduce yourself um, to the listeners.
1: Sure. Um, I'm a neurosurgeon. Uh, I primarily deal with brain and spinal cord uh, issues, and uh, I'm also an associate clinical professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of California, San Francisco, as well as having a private practice up in Chico, where I, I am a co-director of our Neurotrauma Intensive Care Unit. I've been in practice for about 28 years and, uh, and I'm pretty much balanced both a, a clinical practice and an academic inst- uh, interest as well.
0: And so with all that going on, uh, taking time to, uh, to write a book. And again, the, the, uh, the title is it's enough to make you sick. Um, what, what got you, uh, so fired up to, um, to go and write the book and even tell us, you know, how that came to be and, and give us an overview of what you've written.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. We were about four or five years ago in our own community here, we went through somewhat of a crisis that, uh, entailed the medical staff and the, uh, and the hospital administration. And it really took its effect on the community. And it took its effect on me personally. And I found that the, the rancor and the animus that was associated with this really kind of took the wind out of my fails. I mean, I'd been practicing at that time for 23 years. And I, I used to look forward to getting up every day and going to the hospital and doing surgery and seeing patients. And all that we went through really kind of blunted that, and I found that uh, I wasn't liking my job anymore, and and I found that I was doing the same thing that many of my colleagues do, and that's sit down in the doctor's lounge and complain, just complaining about the state of medicine, complaining about the insurance companies, complaining about the hospital, complaining about everybody, and my wife had the uh, insight to say, look, Jeff yeah you you aren't the doc you used to be. You need to get that back. You need to kind of get your spirit back. And so she was the one who actually suggested I write this book. Uh, i've I've always enjoyed writing. Uh, i my the editor of my high school newspaper, and I've always enjoyed that part of 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 uh, of my life. Uh, but I thought, okay, fine. I'll sit down and maybe maybe do some research to write a book without really feeling that I'd ever finish it. And then when uh, well, I'm in the process of beginning that, uh, the presidential election the last presidential election comes into play and all of a sudden healthcare gets pumped to the forefront. And so what I did my book was initially kind of a catharsis. It was a way for me to kind of determine why things were going bad in medicine. You know, why we didn't have that same relationship with our patients that we did a generation ago. And then it could dawned on me that if I did nothing more than tell you why everything was wrong, I wasn't doing a service to my community and it was important for me to try to understand what we could do to make this right and so i expanded the book to not only include kind of the history of how we evolved in healthcare and how we devolved but uh, more importantly how we can really change it and that it was fortuitous that this national debate on healthcare came up and and the whole issue regarding the patient protection and affordable care, uh, affordable care act gave me an opportunity to view that and give a, opinions as to what would work and what wouldn't work.
0: Right now, and that's it's funny you mentioned the high school newspaper. it's one thing you and I have in common. I, I went down an engineering career path, but I was also the editor of my high school paper and always enjoyed writing um, as well. So I'm glad you're able to um, you know kind of revisit that. But um, before talking about the book, um, what I mean, can you tell us a little bit more? You, you mentioned that, you know there, there was that that crisis. Was there an event, or is it just that healthcare had sort of just uh, evolved to the point where it suddenly felt like a crisis that you were referring to?
1: Well, we re- we, our crisis was that a, a group of physicians were going to uh, uh, leave the hospital, and they were leaving the hospital because the hospital could not afford to pay them enough to remain on staff. And, you know, on the surface, that seems like a kind of a, a greedy thing to do. But when you looked at it and you saw the reasons behind that and and the the whole reason that we started changing the way that physicians were reimbursed and the kind of relationship between hospitals and physicians, uh, it finally dawned on me that this wasn't anything unique to our community. Uh, It was just our turn to go through this. Uh, Hospitals and communities across the country were repeating this time and again. And where I was practicing, this was just kind of our time to do this, and we did and we were eventually able to do it successfully and and resolve this but not without a lot of angst and uh, you know gnashing of teeth
0: okay yeah and so i mean i'm sure a lot of what you then you know, end up thinking about and writing about in terms of that question of why are things are going bad i'm sure some of that ties into the crisis so you know let's talk first about you know defining the problem and then you know ideas about what to do about the system I mean, when you say you're investigating why things are going bad what are some of the 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 key things that you think have led you know to kind of the current state of where we are where you know there's a lot of cases where physicians surgeons uh, medical staff are unhappy patients are unhappy um, for different reasons um, what 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 have you found and, and what did you share in the book?
1: well I think that that's a that's a good point you know it's everybody's unhappy there's very few people that are happy with our state of affairs and yet um, we hear our politicians on both sides of the aisle even stand up and, and say, this is America. We've got the greatest health care system in the world. Well, we don't. And in, in, until we face that fact, um, we're not going to solve this. And you know, We have a health care system that's spending about $2.6 trillion a year and almost 18% of our gross domestic product on health care. And yet we have 45 million people who have no insurance. We have another equal number of people who have insurance but it's so inadequate it provide it does not give them access to care we do no better than mediocre when we compare our system with the other systems around the world and we do it at twice the cost and, and until we come to grips with that it, I mean I think that's an indictment of the entire system now who's to blame well I think it's easy it's easy for us to blame the usual suspects as I call them you know we blame the insurance companies we have insurance companies who for years have essentially denied coverage to people who needed it. People with pre-existing conditions could not get insurance. Well, that, that's absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous in a country as wealthy as ours that we have a fair number of people who say, well, you have high blood pressure or you have diabetes, so you don't get care. That makes no sense. We have an insurance, company that, that insurance companies that now have to answer to their investors on Wall Street rather than to their patients. And profit becomes the driving force. And so it's easy to blame insurance companies. We all do that. But then we blame the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, the pharmaceutical companies sit there and, and make drug after drug, which oftentimes is no better than what's available on the market. But they, they then go on and market that to us as, as consumers. And we're spending now billions of dollars on, on medications, but it isn't making us any healthier. We, have, we blame our lawyers, especially physicians. We love to blame the attorneys and say the whole problem is malpractice. We've got greedy attorneys. Well, we do. We have, but this, this system of malpractice doesn't protect doctors from frivolous lawsuits, but it also doesn't protect our patients from negligent care. I mean, the studies clearly show that the majority of people who suffer an injury as a result of med- medical negligence never even file a lawsuit and that the majority of the time that physicians are sued for malpractice, they have, they have no culpability. So it's a lottery mentality. And those are usually the three big people that everybody likes to blame, but I think that in order for us to solve this, we have to take a collective um, culpability. And so I, I, in my book, talk about the role of our politicians, You know, the politicians who, who essentially take all this special interest money and do the bidding of the lobbyists rather than the bidding of the public. Um, they, you know, they like to pass laws that sound really good and make great sound bites on C-SPAN. But you know, if they ever talked to any of us working in the trenches, we would tell them this isn't going to work. But they don't do that. They don't do that. And then uh, the other three that I think are oftentimes neglected are first our hospitals. You know, same thing. Hospitals were all usually designed by communities for communities. It was an asset to take care of the people within a given community. Well, as healthcare has evolved and we've gone to this, quote, market-based healthcare system, hospitals are oftentimes part of a large uh, chain of hospitals, again, responsible not to their patients or their communities, but instead responsible to that community of investors on Wall Street who look at the bottom line of profit and loss, and they've changed their focus. But I also have to indict myself and the rest of the medical profession because, you know, we've kind of been responsible for this as well. You know, we've done very little to control the runaway costs of health care. We always kind of say, well, it's really not our problem. And so we've let the control of health care be wrested from our hands and placed into the hands of, of corporate executives. And And I think we share a collective responsibility. And so physicians now find that they're spending less and less time with patients because, they have to move them around, move them along, as, as I describe in the book, on an assembly line. Because volume is the key here. You have to see more patients. You have to do more procedures. And so I think that we share equal indictment. But finally, the one group that I think always gets neglected is the American public. You know, they we look at the public as victims in healthcare. We say, geez, these poor patients. But we have a public that, as you can see from the recent news, that you know, a third of us are obese. Uh, two-thirds of us are overweight. Our kids are following at greater levels than that. And we still smoke. We drink too much. Um, at any given time in this country, uh, a quarter of all beds in a acute hospital are taken up by patients whose admission was the direct result of some type of alcohol abuse. Uh, I, I heard an interesting statistic just a few weeks ago that a third of all the burn units across the United States a third of the beds are filled by patients who suffered their burns as a result of cooking methamphetamine, and over 80% of them are uninsured. And the cost to take care of them is excess of six to seven thousand dollars a day. So the, the American public really needs to take its share of responsibility for this. You know, we, as, as, as the public, what we do is we pop ourselves down on a on a couch, and if we're liberals, we watch MSNBC, and if we're conservatives, we watch Fox News. And whatever those people tell us, we just kind of digest it and then regurgitate that as truth. And it's really time for us as individuals to look into these issues a little bit more in a little bit more depth than that. Yeah, so there's not there's plenty of suspects to go around.
0: Sure, and you know, a lot of the political discussion, I think, from both sides of the aisle, you hear a lot of talk about um, identifying and diagnosing the problem. And um, like I said, you can look at Different players in the system. You can look at the the system as a whole. Um, it's easier to you know to define that problem than it is to come up with you know real uh, you know compelling solutions. So I'm curious, you know, what um, do you propose in your book? What what lines up or is different from uh, you know, that mouthful of a uh, of legislation, the Affordable Care, uh, Affordable Patient Protection affordable and care Affordable Act, Care right. Act. Uh, no, no wonder it gets uh, an easier to say nickname. <laughs> Quote, unquote, unquote, Obamacare is easier to say. Uh, right. we, don't, we don't call it Congress care, but, you know. Um, um, so it, what what do you see as some of the key needed elements of reform? And again, you know, maybe compare that to uh, what had been passed uh, into law. Well, you know,
1: I, I think... Uh, going back to just your earlier statement of calling it Obamacare is somewhat of a misnomer because I think if you look back when Barack Obama was running for office four years ago, I think he clearly delineated for all of us what his vision was for health care. I mean, and we listened. You know, we sat as a country, we listened to all the candidates, and I thought they were very clear on how they thought health care should be structured. And we listened and we voted for Barack Obama as a country. We elected him. And then when he tried to actually implement the plan that he had told us he was going to do, we let the special interests stand up and, and tell us how it was socialized medicine and wasn't going to work. And we just, again, bought into that. And we let that whole debate be co-opted by the extremes, I think, on the far right and the far left, instead of having that debate, a uh, reasoned debate, in the middle where it needed to be uh, held. In terms of how do you how do you reform care? You know, on the surface, I think it, it seems like a very daunting task. I mean, we've got this huge system; it's very expensive, and it's really really important to the lives of everyday Americans. But I think it can be broken down into three basic things. One is universal coverage, and that means nothing more than making sure everybody has insurance. Or, but equally important, which I think is oftentimes lost in this bill, is universal access because if you have if you have an insurance card that's really nice and the affordable care act essentially is going to give most americans an insurance card and we say great you have insurance well it's not that easy you know try to go see a doctor if you have medicaid you know you've got a card you know as i the 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 comparison i have in the book is we gave you a jersey we p- gave you a hat we put you on a team but you're never going to get a chance to play because nobody will see you the chances of being seen if you're on Medicaid because the reimbursement rate is so low, doctors aren't going to see you, and that same access to care becomes a huge problem. The, and so that has to be addressed, and, and in the book I talk about several ways, you know, we don't have the time to go into a detail here, but several ways that we can actually achieve that universal access and universal coverage, which are two of the three keys, which brings us to the third, and that is controlling costs, because if you get everybody in this country Good access to good medical care—it's not going to be cheap, and we have to control those costs. And there is a wide variety of ways that we can do that. But I think one of the ways that this bill fell short was they essentially cut out many of the many of the ways to uh, to save costs, uh, to save money. And for example, you know one of the issues that Barack Obama really pushed as a candidate was to get a um, a government option for insurance for people. Who didn't have access to care? Well, you know, it was interesting because the insurance industry just reared up its ugly head and made sure we told everybody that this was the government takeover of health care. Uh, I find it ironic that they have no problem with a government option or a public option for, for the, the elderly with the Medicare program. You know, that that's the group that uses health care more than anybody and has a very limited income. So that, that was okay. You could put those people in the government option. Yeah, well, and
0: That's Medicare people. Medicare is even more of a, a single payer kind of system, more so than being an option, right? If you're
1: correct, yeah. correct. And then the other end of the spectrum were the poor people, people who couldn't afford their their premiums. And, you know, that was a uh, that was okay to put them in a government option, put them in Medicaid. But what the insurance industry really didn't want was to have somebody compete with them, a government option to compete with them for those people in the middle, the people who were relatively young relatively healthy, relatively low utilizers of healthcare care resources and paid their premiums or had them paid for by their employers because that's where all the profit in medicine is made. And that's the one group that they had a problem with the public option for. And then you talk about, you know, we can save money in pharmaceuticals. I mean, you know, another thing, Obama told us he was going to make sure that Medicare had the same rights as every other insurance company to to negotiate the cost of drugs for their clients. Well, the insur- the pharmaceutical industry came in with their money and their influence and the next thing you know that was taken out of the bill. And now the cost savings there has been estimated to be somewhere between uh, 60 and 100 billion dollars a year, which over the next decade would be close to a trillion dollars in savings. And then I think the most difficult part that we as a country are going to have to uh, come to grips with and it's going to be absolutely essential if we're going to make this work, is the reasonable rationing of health care. And nobody wants to use that word. To say, it's a a dirty, that's a dirty word. <laughs> it's a dirty word. And you have a, any tri, You know, any politician who says that is going to get hammered. But we do that every day. We do that every day. We ration. But we don't ration based on whether a, a treatment is effective. We ration based on socioeconomic standards. If you have the money... If you have good insurance, you can have a mammogram every year whether you need it or not. But if you're poor, good luck. And that's rationing. You know, that's rationing. Well, I'm saying we should ration, but we should ration based on evidence. Evidence Evidence-based medicine needs to be the cornerstone of our new healthcare system. And we say, look... If, if this procedure or this medicine or this treatment works to improve the quality of somebody's life, and this isn't talking about whether they're hundred years old or two months old. You don't ration based on age. It's rationing based on whether these treatments provide um, good outcomes, good quality of life outcomes for patients. And if we show that a treatment is, is effective in doing that with true evidence-based medicine, we should reimburse for it and we should reimburse well for it. But by the same token, if we know that something is unnecessary or something is of marginal benefit, we shouldn't pay for it. Now, if, if you want to pay for it, that's fine. In other words, if you're 96 years old and we have evidence that tells us if you're 96 and you have a heart attack and you come in with an injection fraction of 15%, we know the chance that you're going to get off the table for a cardiac bypass is less than 3%. We can't pay for that. We can't pay for that if we can't pay for kids' immunizations across this country. Does that mean that you can't have that operation? No, you're welcome to it, but you have to pay for it. You have to pay for it in my system.
0: Well, there's, um, I'm sure, a lot um, more detail, a lot more to chew on uh, in in your book. It's out now. Uh, it's called uh, "It's Enough to Make You Sick: The Failure of American Healthcare and a Prescription." Uh, for a cure. Um, Jeffrey Luliboski, Um thanks for taking time to chat today. Are there any final thoughts that you would want to um, leave the listeners with either about, uh, you know, something else in your book or something that they can do to take action to help make um, meaningful health care reform happen?
1: Well, I think that the, the, this is a huge issue. I mean, this is a huge issue, not only as it relates to our health as a nation, but as it relates to our economy, it's gonna, if we let health care continue spiraling out of control, it's going to consume so much of our gross domestic product that every other social program, our national defense program, our infrastructure is going to suffer. So I think it, Americans really need to go back and take command of this debate. We can't let this be co-opted by the politicians who are si- simply looking for votes. It, it's too important of an issue because it's going to define who we are as a country not only to ourselves, but to the world around us for generations. And it's, it's too important for us to let it be you know, uh, cannibalized by the extremes. So pay attention, stay involved, don't let this get off the front burner.
0: Okay, well, again, thank you, um, Jeff. Thanks for um, being our guest here today on the
1: podcast. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Bye now. Thanks for
0: listening.